Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. In this session, I want us to begin to describe how problems develop in our lives. I want to try to integrate everything that we've been studying so far in all of our previous sessions into a model or a flow chart on how problems develop. On the board, I have already put up much of what we've covered, and I want us to begin with the personal issue of worth. Now, we need to see that again, of course, in the context of our, all of our needs. You'll recall that this is the hierarchy of needs that we have already studied in a previous session. The need that we have, first of all, that's most basic is a need for health. That is to know that our bodies are functioning properly to be healthy, to be breathing and to have food and air and water and all that sort of thing is absolutely necessary for our, our, our health or our body needs. And then once those needs are met, we can move on to address the personal needs we have for worth. Now let me remind you again what it means to be worthy or to have a sense of worth means that we know that we are secure in God's love, his acceptance and forgiveness, to know that we are significant in God's plan for our life, his eternal plan, that our life has meaning and purpose as ambassadors for Christ, and that we are adequate in the power of the Spirit to, to do what it is he's called on us to do. These all are summarized, all these needs for security and significance are all summarized in the one term, worth. And finally, when we know that we're worthy, we can go on to love others like Christ, to actually realize our full potential in Christ Jesus to love other people and to function in relationship to others in a very healthy way. Now, the problem is, when these needs for worth get threatened, or any of these needs, we are motivated by what I'm referring to as deficit motivation here to meet these needs. The deficit motivation is just simply a, a term that describes the need that drives us for something that's missing. That's why we call it deficit motivation. Something's missing in our life. In the case of the physical needs, if what's missing in our life is food, we call the deficit motivation hunger. In the case of the physical needs, again, if what's missing is water, we call that deficit motivation thirst. Now, Jesus used those same terms, you recall, to describe needs of, a, of the soul, needs in our person. And he said that you may hunger and thirst, not only for food and water, but you can also hunger for love or thirst for significance as well. So whenever we have something missing in our life, particularly at the personal level, if security is missing, we're going to have a hunger for that love, acceptance, and forgiveness that gives us a sense of security. 
If what's missing in our life is significance, we're going to have a hunger or a thirst for significance, for importance, for meaning, for purpose in our life, for a sense of adequacy. When this deficit motivation drives us, everything we say and everything we do is motivated to meet our own needs, and therefore it becomes, as we'll see here in a moment, self-centered in nature. But you'll notice between the deficit motivation and the self-centered behavior that we engage in when we're motivated in that fashion, there's this little term, false assumption. Let me clarify this for you. The false assumption is a statement that we have already alluded to, the statement that says, I will be worthy if, and then you could just fill in the blank with anything. I will be worthy if I have more money, I have a better job, I'll be worthy if I get a spouse, I can get married, I'll be worthy if I can change my spouse, I can get somebody else, I'll be worthy if I can have kids, I'll be worthy if my kids behave themselves, I'll be worthy if I can get a better job, I'll be worthy if, and the list goes on and on and on. Every time we get in our mind the idea that we need something other than what God has already given us to make us secure in Christ, in his love, in his acceptance, in his plan for our life, every time we get into the idea that we need something other than what he's given us, we're going to be in one way or another talking in our own minds and that self-talk about these false assumptions saying, I will be worthy if. This is what a false assumption is. Now, the need is still there. The need for personal security and significance drives us for this need for worth, drives us by this deficit motivation to find places where we hopefully will become secure and significant. This is where the I will be worthy ifs come in. When we believe that we've got to have a certain thing or we've got to have a certain relationship to be worthy, then these false assumptions generate in us a self-centered behavior that seeks to get whatever it is we're believing we need to make us worthy at any cost. Self-centered behavior doesn't often look like self-centered behavior, though. As a matter of fact, self-centered behavior can sometimes look like very loving behavior. Let me give you a couple illustrations of this. Let's suppose that a husband or a wife in a marriage relationship decides that they want to do something good for another person. Let me just use myself as an example. Let's suppose that I bring some flowers home for my wife, Sandy. Isn't that a lovely thing to do? Isn't that a marvelous thing? Ladies, don't you agree that that is a lovely thing to do for me to take, take flowers to my wife, Sandy? Now, the question I have to come to grips with is why am I taking flowers to my wife, Sandy? You see, I could be taking flowers to my wife, Sandy, because I'm feeling a bit insecure. I could be taking flowers to her because I'm feeling a little insignificant and I need a little love and respect. And so by giving her flowers, I'm hoping that she'll respond with the love and respect that I'm hungry for. If that's the case, my false assumption in this is I will be worthy if I can manipulate my spouse into loving me by giving her flowers. You all following me on that? Now, this can be real tricky, but who could fault me for giving flowers to my wife, you see? Self-centered behavior doesn't always look self-centered on the surface. We can do the same thing religiously. Did you know that? 
I've been in, in many kinds of religious um, situations in which people are wanting to win souls for Jesus. They want to go out on a witnessing evangelistic campaign to win souls for Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with winning souls for Jesus. However, when you talk to them a little bit, you find out that if you could somehow peel back the veneer and look into their heart, you would see this false assumption in there that says, I'll be worthwhile if, I'll be secure or significant as a person if I can win a soul to Jesus. That activity, even though it looks good on the outside, is really self-centered at its heart. It's really based on a false assumption, I'll be worthy if I can win souls to Jesus. Much religious activity is engaged with a self-centered behavior based on false assumptions that we're now not worthy. Now let me remind you again of what a false assumption is. This is so important, especially for you who are watching this on video. It's important that you understand what a false assumption is, how false this false assumption really is. The fact that we say, I will be worthy if, declares in our mind and our thinking that right now we're not worthy at all. Right now we're not secure. No matter what God has done for us in Christ, we're not really secure. Right now we're not significant. We're not important in God's kingdom. No matter what he's done for us in Christ, we're really not significant. But I will be worthy, I will be secure or significant if I can do this or that or the other or if these things happen to me. You see, the falsity of that is not clearly seen unless we see into the heart issue of the, of the motivation that we're calling here deficit motivation on the board. This deficit motivation is a, a motivation that drives us to get what we think is missing. That's why we use the term deficit. If we're going to, going to find something missing in our life, in the case of security, love is missing, we're going to be driven, motivated to get that love. That deficit motivation then is going to drive us through these false assumptions to get whatever we think we've got to have. And the reason these are false is because, not because they're wrong in and of themselves. It's not wrong in and of itself for you to be loved by another person, to be respected by another person. There's nothing wrong with that by itself. But when you believe that you must have that in order for you to be okay, when you believe you've got to have the love and respect of another person for you to be worthy, then you are denying what God says he's already done to make you worthy. And I hope you're following me on that because it's very important that we understand that this false, these false assumptions will lead to really self-centered behavior that most of us don't recognize in ourselves. When, whenever I get into self-centered behavior based on a false assumption concerning my worth, I usually rationalize the dickens out of this false, this self-centered behavior. I usually say, now, now there's nothing wrong with me giving flowers to my wife. A good husband ought to give flowers to his wife. And you say, I deny the real assumption underlying that, that I'm going to somehow manipulate her to love me. I'm going to somehow manipulate her to respect me more. And when, I, when I'm denying that, I become blind. This is the blindness of the heart that we've talked about before in our studies the blindness of the heart to our own self-centeredness. Now, this self-centered behavior, however, is never without a goal. And if you'll notice on, on the chart here that I have on the board, the goal is in itself false because the behavior is self-centered and it's based on false assumptions. 
For instance, my goal in giving flowers to my wife, Sandy, if it's based on a false assumption, I'll be worthy if I can gain her love and respect, is going to be a false goal of giving her flowers, even though it looks good. Even though on the outside it looks good, it's still going to be false. And even when I give her the flowers, when I reach that false goal, I'm just going to have a sense of emptiness. At first, I'm going to be satisfied. And I should put that on the board for you so you'll understand what I'm talking about here. There is a temporary satisfaction. There's a temporary satisfaction whenever we hit a false goal. It feels good to hit a false goal. But then that temporary satisfaction wears off and we're back to the same sense of emptiness that drove us in the first place. The same sense of worthlessness that we felt that kicked off this deficit motivation. Now, in this cycle that I have up on the board, we can plug a lot of different scenarios in our life in that. And that's what I want to take some time to do, just to practice this right now. I want to take some time to run through a few different types of false assumptions to illustrate what kind of, of problems we get into when we're trying to meet our own needs as persons. I've just given you the illustration concerning a manipulation in a husband and wife scenario, but let's take a, a more common illustration, I think, not that that's not common, it is, but let's take a, another illustration that would probably affect all of us to one degree or another. Typical false assumption has to do with money. Probably one of the, the most serious false assumptions the Bible recognizes is money. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote Timothy, he told him to watch out for this money business. He said, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, he didn't say money was the root of all evil. Don't get the idea that he says, if you have money, then you've got evil on you. He says, the love of money. And what he means by the love of money is really the false assumptions that we have concerning that money. Typical false assumption is this. I will be worthy if, or I will be secure if I can get more money. And so we go to work getting more money. We set for ourselves goals that will, we think will bring us more money. And we engage in all kinds of work, self-centered behavior, to reach that goal of more money, the false goal of more money. Now again, more money by itself is not wrong. But when we are basing our worth on that money, it is the fact that we ourselves are trusting that money more than what God has done for us that makes this a false goal. But even when we reach that false goal and we make more money, all we have is a temporary satisfaction. And before long, especially if we spend it like I do, before long, you're back to that emptiness again and you're back to where you started. Now there was a fellow in the Old Testament who gives us a lot of insight into this. His name was Solomon. He was the wisest man that ever lived. He was also the wealthiest man that ever lived. Solomon's wealth is unimaginable. As a matter of fact, we're told, history tells us that Solomon took in over $100 million worth of gold every year just from his gold mines alone. That'd be a nice little business to have, wouldn't it? $100 million a year, year, annual income, $100 million just in gold. That says nothing about the other trades that he had. But Solomon had all the money in the world, and he also had wisdom. In a little book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, he gives us his testimony. 
In Ecclesiastes, in the first two chapters, Solomon tells us what things he trusted in to make himself worthy besides what God has already provided for him. And I call this little cycle then, I've, I've named this little cycle that I've put on the board here for you, the Solomon Syndrome. The Solomon Syndrome. Because Solomon, you see, went around this cycle many, many times. As a matter of fact, in the first chapter of his book, Ecclesiastes, the whole theme of that book, by the way, is vanity of vanity. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Translation from the King James would read this way. Emptiness, emptiness. Everything is empty and means nothing. It's like chasing the wind. What are you going to do with it if you could catch it? Nothing counts. Nothing matters. It's all empty. This is, this is what I refer to as the Solomon Syndrome. He started basing his worth on several things like we do. For instance, having a personal need, because Solomon was a person, to be secure and significant, he first of all thought that if he could learn more, if he had a better education, that he'd be worthy. And so he went to school, went back to school again to get a better degree. Now being the king and having all the money, he could afford to go to any college around, and he went to the best school, and he studied intensely, and he gave himself to know wisdom, he says. And he concluded at the end of that that with much learning comes madness. In other words, the more you study, the crazier you get. Because as any of you have ever experienced this, you realize that the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know anything. The more you realize there's more questions unanswered than there are answered the more you study. And this drove Solomon crazy. He said, I can't handle this. And so he switched goals. He says, that didn't work. That was empty. That left me empty. So I'm going to do something else instead. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to party. Solomon was really the original party animal. He partied hardy because he could. He had all the money in the world. He had everything set up to party. And so he went to party. And he said, I'm going to give myself to no mirth. So I'm just going to have fun. That's my goal in life. My goal in life is just to have fun. No matter what, I'm just going to be having fun. And so he partied. And he found also, after a short time, that this left him empty as well. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll just stay drunk. I'll give my, myself to wine. I'll just take an edge off here. And he began to drink heavily. You know, he was a functional alcoholic because he did a lot of things while he was drinking. But he just gave himself to no wine, it says in the King James, which means he stayed drunk all the time. And he found that this too was vanity and vexation of spirit. And so he went to work, still while he was drinking heavily, he went to work in building things. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll accomplish things more than any other king before me has ever done. I'll build up Jerusalem. He noticed that his daddy David had prepared all the materials to build the temple, but he had not yet built the temple. And so Solomon went to work on the temple. And he built a fantastic temple. Solomon's temple is spoken of in world literature all over. He built a beautiful temple. And of course, that was after he built his own house out of, out of cedar and got convicted that he was living in this wonderful house and God was still living in a tent. But he built not only a temple and his house, but he also built a multitude of buildings. As a matter of fact, just his stables for his horses were phenomenal and took years in the building. He also, by the way, predated the Romans by several, well, about a thousand years or so in an aqueduct system. 
he actually designed and implemented an aqueduct system to water his orchards. I mean, Solomon came up with all kinds of things, and he was doing all of this with this false assumption in mind, I will be worthy if, that's his false assumption, I can build up more than any before me. And he reached his false goal. Based on that false assumption, he reached that false goal, and he was satisfied. He says, I looked around, and I saw all the labor that my hands had done, and it was good, and he was satisfied with it. But then that nagging little sense of emptiness began to come into his heart again. That little sense of vanity began to come into him again. And so he went to work on another false assumption. He said, I know what I need. I need more entertainment. That's what I need. I need more recreation. And so he actually imported all sorts of entertainment into his, into his court as the king, and he was entertained day and night. I mean, he had all kinds. It was a variety show like you wouldn't believe. And he had all sorts of entertainment coming. Anything strange or unusual in the world at that time, Solomon got it and brought it in because it was exciting to see something new and strange. And he thought, this is where it's at. Now I'll just be entertained. It's, he's very similar to what we get into when we, when we live for the weekend. You know what I'm talking about? You work all week and you live for that recreation in the weekend when you're off work and then you'll be satisfied and then you'll be happy. If you're like I am, sometimes you live for the weekend and then you fight all weekend. Okay? And, and Solomon found that living for entertainment was also empty. It left him with a sense, a vague sense of emptiness and worthlessness. So he decided he would get a little bit kinky. Yeah, I said kinky. Solomon got into sex, big time. He had hundreds of wives and more concubines. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that he, he was able to establish the kingdom was by marrying the daughters of the neighboring nations around Israel. He would go in and marry the princess in that nation because it's hard to go to war with your son-in-law. And he would, through his wisdom, actually manipulate. He was... He was one of the greatest negotiators the world has ever seen. He was a tremendous diplomat. And he expanded the kingdom of Israel through manipulative techniques, and he used marriage to do that. But he also got involved in sexual activity. Now, the King James doesn't make it very clear, but when you read the original Hebrew language, you can find, you'll find there that he imported not only uh, men, or not only women, into his court, but also men. Solomon got very, very sexually dysfunctional. In fact, he lost it altogether. What was he looking for? He was looking for that personal sense of worth again. He was trying to satisfy himself and his need for worth through a sexual activity and became a sexual addict, actually. But he discovered that this, too, when he reached his goal, this, too, was empty. He only had temporary satisfaction. One of the saddest statements Solomon makes is in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He says there, when he looked around on all the works his hands had done, and he saw that he had done more than any king before him had ever accomplished, and he looked at what he had actually produced, he said he became depressed. His heart still troubled him. And his testimony was this, therefore, I hated life. 
And I want to show you something here on the board that's very, very important for us to keep in mind because whether we understand it or not, our culture is right here smack dab in the Solomon Syndrome right now all around us. Our culture, the American culture, is the richest, most wealthy nation that's ever been on the face of this earth. And all of us, by the way, no matter how poor we may think we are, are really rich compared to Solomon. You know what Solomon would give for your refrigerator? Now you stop and think about that. We have more luxury as our, at our fingertips right now than Solomon did in all his splendor and all his glory. And we too, as a nation, today, culturally, we're in the same position of this Solomon syndrome as Solomon was. But when Solomon reached all of his false goals, and he was still empty inside. He had done everything in life you could possibly do to satisfy himself. He was still empty inside. He said, therefore, I hated life. That's a suicidal statement, folks. Therefore, I hated life means there's nothing else in life for me at all. Now, I want to show you just one symptom here. During the last several years, I've become aware of the statistics that illustrate that in our country, the United States of America, the wealthiest nation that has ever lived, ever existed on the face of this earth, we have more advances in our technology, in our medicine, in our arts, in our culture, all of this sort of thing, and yet, for some strange reason, our teenagers are literally killing themselves in an epidemic proportion. I'm talking here about suicide. When Solomon said, therefore I hated life, he was suicidal. I can't help but note the correlation between the increase of teenage suicide in our country and our affluence and our wealth and our ability to get everything we naturally think will make us worthy. You see, it's the same indictment as the Solomon syndrome. The fact is that when we pass through this, this cycle and we reach all of our false goals, there's nothing else in life to live for. And our teenagers are hitting this very quickly. And they are actually killing themselves in epidemic proportion. Now, there's some other things that I need to tell you about this Solomon Syndrome that we need to realize because when we go through this cycle, as I've shared with you, I've just taken them one at a time, but you see our minds are capable of holding about seven different things at one time. In our minds, we are capable of, of hanging on to about seven different ideas at the same time. And so what we do is we don't just do one false assumption. We don't put all our eggs in one basket. All right? What we do instead is we line up about seven false assumptions, okay? Because we know intuitively, we've been around this track enough to know that when you hit a false goal, you're only going to reach, you're only going to have temporary satisfaction. But what we do to fight that is we line up another one right behind this one. So that by the time this temporary satisfaction fades, we've got another false goal that's right behind it. And that's how we keep on this cycle and keep on this track. Were it not for the grace of God, I think we'd all be stuck in that cycle, the Solomon Syndrome, constantly basing our worth on others. Because this is the way we've been programmed. I don't want you to be too hard on yourself here about this because you've been raised this way. You've been raised and programmed in the Solomon Syndrome. You see, before you were old enough to even abstractly conceive that there is a God, much less that that God 
has made you secure and significant by what he's provided for you in his son Jesus, you've already been around this Solomon syndrome millions of times. Before you've ever had a chance to conceive that there is a God and believe the gospel of how he's ministered to you, you're already programmed in this Solomon syndrome. I watched this program, this programming take place, this natural conditioning take place in my daughter Angela. And it broke my heart. You see, I was aware of this Solomon syndrome when I adopted our daughter from Korea. We adopted her when she was six months old. And I was aware that, that kids will grow up uh, in this kind of a Solomon syndrome. So I, I was intent on working against that with her. I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach her better. And I did. I started teaching her. Well, I mean, when she wasn't even a year old, I used to hold her and I'd tell her, now, your, your worth is not based on what you have. And your, your significance now is not based on what you can do, whether you can walk or not, before she learned to walk. It's not based on whether you can mow the lawn for dad or not. Now, you are worthy because God has made you secure in his love and God has made you significant in his plan and she just kind of look at me and occasionally grin and usually go to sleep. And what I began to realize is I could not fight against the conditioning that was going on in her. I could not stop it. You see, the conditioning, the natural conditioning that all of us grow up in is we learn to trust everything and everyone except God for our worth as persons before we are even five or six years old. And we've got enough conditioning stored in that subconscious mind or what the Bible calls the heart to plague us with this Solomon syndrome the rest of our life. So the best we can do is recognize that it's there. Confess it before God and let him deal with it. And so as I went through this process of the Solomon syndrome with my own daughter, I began to realize how pervasive this thing is, that we have all been conditioned to trust everything and everyone but God. And therefore, we have all been conditioned to channel this deficit motivation we naturally feel as persons through false assumptions that have been historically built into our subconscious mind throughout our life experience. We've all been conditioned to engage in self-centered behavior, striving for that false goal naturally. We've all been conditioned to experience the temporary satisfaction of that false goal and then to fall into that vague sense of emptiness which starts the whole cycle over again. But God is gracious. Even though we've been conditioned in this fashion, God does something very significant for us. He actually puts an obstacle right in our way that keeps us from reaching our false goal. This obstacle blocks us from reaching a false goal, but also frustrates us. And so we get so frustrated because we can't get over this obstacle to reach our false goal, we try harder again. Now I want to focus in on this little vicious cycle down here in the bottom. You see, it's virtually impossible to reach people when they're in the Solomon syndrome and they're reaching their false goals. I mean, let's get real about this. What do we need to trust God for? We've got a good job. We've got plenty of money. We live in a comfortable home. We've got enough clothes. Everybody's healthy. What do we need to trust God for? Man, life is good. It doesn't get any better than this, right? We don't need to trust God for anything until 
we get blocked from reaching one of those false goals. And then we get frustrated. And that frustration comes out in one of three emotional forms depending on the nature of the obstacle that keeps us from reaching our false goal. If the obstacle that's keeping us from reaching that false goal is an external circumstance over which we have no control, our frustration is going to come out in the form of hatred. We're going to get mad. That frustration is going to be of bitterness and hatred inside, a resentment against that obstacle that's keeping us from reaching that false goal. If the nature of the obstacle that's keeping us from reaching the false goal is the fact that our false goal was unreachable to begin with, by that I'm talking about a goal such as never being criticized by anyone. In order for me to be worthy, I must never be criticized by anyone, is an unreachable goal. And if that's, if that's the goal, that, that unreachable goal is the obstacle that keeps us from achieving that satisfaction, our emotional state is going to be one of self-pity. We're, we're going to get all beside ourselves, feeling sorry for ourselves, making excuse and blaming others, and filled with self-pity. If the obstacle is just simply the fear of failure, that is, if I try, I might fail, so in order to keep from failing, I won't even try. If that's the obstacle that keeps us from reaching our false goal, our emotional state is going to be characterized by anxiety. Now, these three emotional states, you might recall from a previous session, are those sinful states that destroy us. Those are the sinful emotions that actually bring death into our lives. And where do they come from? They come from the nature of the obstacle that keeps us from reaching a false goal. And it leads to frustration that comes out in those three emotional forms. Now, what they do generally, these, these emotions that we feel, is cause us to try harder to reach our false goal. So when you first run into an obstacle and you get frustrated, you say, okay, no problem, I'm going to try harder this time. But if you hit that same obstacle again, then you start really getting frustrated and the emotions start building. After a while, you can get in a vicious cycle. And I mean, it is vicious because this frustration leads to self-centered behavior. You hit that obstacle and you try again. You go back into that self-centered behavior. What happens at that point is it begins to take its toll on you physically. Your health becomes threatened. Now, remember the concept of this need hierarchy. If your health needs become threatened, then you're going to have to give up trying to make yourself worthy to hang on to what worth you've got in order to maintain your health. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people, when they get caught in this frustration, they say, okay, I'm just going to hang on to what worth I've got. I'm not going to try to make myself worthy by reaching another false goal. I'm just going to settle for what worth I've got. In order to do that, you have to deny or distort reality in one way or another. This is what the psychologist calls neurosis, a denial or distortion of reality through various defense mechanisms that we use. Now, for folks that decide, I'm just going to back off from reaching my false goals and I'm going to hang on to what worth I've got, when they do that and, and discover the unhappy knowledge that they have no worth at all, they really can't live with that. 
You see, we cannot live without some sort of sense of significance or security. And so thinking that they have no worth at all, they have to, in fact, break altogether with reality. That break with reality is called psychosis. I just call neurosis and psychosis a personal death. Personal death happens when the frustration builds up to such an extent that we give up this little vicious cycle, much less the Solomon syndrome, and we enter into a denial, a distortion, or a total break with reality. This is what psychologists would refer to as mental illness. I call it personal death. This is where it comes from. Now, a moment ago I said God is gracious in breaking our Solomon syndrome. I'm going to get back to that with you real quick. God is gracious by allowing obstacles to come in our way to keep us from reaching our false goal because, you see, what he's concerned with in our life is not that we base our worth on the things that we have or the relationships that we have with other people or on all the natural things that Solomon was basing his worth on, but instead what he wants is for us to base our worth on him and what he's done for us in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. So in order to get us to that point, he has to kind of peel us off of that Solomon syndrome. He has to pull us back from that. And the most dramatic way he does that is to stick an obstacle in our way to keep us from reaching a false goal. Now, when you hit this obstacle and you experience this frustration and you're getting all involved in this vicious cycle here, generally at this point is when you say, hmm, maybe I need to get some help here. Maybe I need to go to counseling. Maybe I need some help at this point. And so naturally, what you, what you try to do is to find someone you can talk to you need to find somebody that you can relate to in a healthy way, somebody that you can tell about to uh, speak to about your frustration that you're feeling inside, somebody you can share your deep feelings with. And when you find that person, you naturally tell them exactly what you want. Now, most people that come to me for counseling come to me very frustrated. And the reason they're frustrated is because they have not reached their false goal. And, of course, they come to me with a plan in their mind on what I ought to be able to do for them. And that is to devise some way to give them more information or give them something that will enable them to hurdle this obstacle and reach their false goal. The problem with that is I'm really not helping them if I do that. I really can't be helping them because, you see, if they reach this false goal, all they're going to get is temporary satisfaction. And they're going to be back here in this same situation some time later, even if they reach their false goal. But you see, that's when most people want help. They want help when obstacles keep them from reaching their false goal. They don't really want to challenge whether or not that goal is true or false. They assume that it is true already. This false assumption so locked in their mind, they assume that they've got to have this to live. They really don't want to suggest that they, they don't have to have it to live. So what they want to do in counseling is to have somebody help them get over the obstacle. By the way, this is what we normally pray about in our prayer requests. Did you know that? Yeah, it's true. Most of our prayer requests concern the obstacles that keep us from reaching our false goals. And we'll even actually ask God to help us get over this. Now, we don't use this language, you understand, but that's really what's going on. Let me give you a case in point. I've seen this time and time again with marriage counseling in particular. A husband and wife split up. Wife leaves, runs off with another man. Husband comes to me. He's all brokenhearted and very religious. It's strange how husbands get religion as soon as the wife walks out the door. 
But he comes to me and he says, look, my wife left me. What can I do to get her back? What I'm hearing immediately is this. I will be worthy if I can get this woman under my control again. I've got a major obstacle. This woman boogied with another man. What can you do to help me get over this obstacle to reach my false goal of getting this woman back so I can control her again, so I can be worthy? Now, you can understand at this point how difficult it is to try to tell a man that he's got the wrong goal here. He's got a false goal based on a false assumption, because especially when he's gotten religious on you. Because then out comes the Bible. He says, now you know what the Bible says about divorce. Yes, yes, I know. Malachi says God hates divorce. I go on, of course, to point out that God hates, hates manipulative, controlling husbands as well. Now he doesn't hate people. He hates the actions. But the point is, he'll, he'll bring out the Bible and he'll say, now God hates divorce, so we shouldn't get a divorce. And he'll do all kinds of things to pray, to cry, to repent, to do all kinds of things to get that wife back again. All for the wrong reasons. Because he does not yet know he's worthy with or without his wife. Because his worth is not based on whether or not he has his wife. It's based on his relationship to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's so frustrated because he wants that woman back. I will be worthy if. But he covers it all up. All this self-centered behavior gets covered up with a religious veneer. And so he calls all his friends up and says, I want you to pray with me. What are we going to pray? We're going to pray that my wife comes back home. What are we doing? Now we're trying to get God in this mess, aren't we? We're trying to get God to straighten out this so he can get over his false assumption, manipulate his wife to come back, and then he'll live happily ever after. You see, the problem's not that simple. The problem is he's got wrong thinking. The problem he's thinking is, I will be worthy if I can have my wife back. Now the same thing happens with women who want to manipulate their husbands. Or the same thing happens with parents who want to manipulate their children or children who want to change their parents. The same thing happens with people who want to manipulate the people they work with, or work for, or who work for them. You see, our relationships are based usually on a whole host of false assumptions about what it's going to take to change other people to make us worthy. And so what we need to realize is that God is not in that. Quite likely, God will leave that obstacle right in place. He will not change that obstacle. Paul had a false assumption concerning his worth. He said, I will be worthy if I can get rid of this thorn in the flesh. And his false assumption was he was not adequate enough, he was not healthy enough, he was not good enough to go on and do what God had called him to do as long as he had this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. But you see, he prayed about this three times. He said, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. God, won't you come and remove this obstacle, this thorn in the flesh, so I can reach my false goal of being worthy. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to go on in spite of that thorn in the flesh. Now, let me talk about that change as we close our session out, because this is a fundamental, important change in our thinking that has to take place. If we're going to get out of the problems that we get into with our thinking here, what's going to have to change on this flow chart is the only thing that can change, and that's our false assumptions. This is the only thing we can change. You cannot change the fact that you're a person with personal needs. You wake up every morning and you, you're a person, so every morning you've got personal needs that demand to be met. You've got a need for 
security and significance every single morning. And you cannot change the fact that every morning you've got a deficit in that security and significance that drives you, that motivates you in everything you say and do. You can't change the fact that when you're operating under a false assumption of what it's going to take to make you worthy, that you're going to be in self-centered behavior because the only person you're thinking about is yourself. You can't change the fact that if you reach a false goal, you'll only get temporary satisfaction, which will degenerate into that emptiness and come back into the same cycle, or complete the cycle of the Solomon Syndrome. The only thing we can change is what we're thinking, what we're believing, the false assumptions. Now, I gave you the format before, and I've used it again and again. It's a little format. I know it's a little artificial, but I want you to try to stay with me and talk about, especially in your groups, I want you to talk about I will be worthy if. And use that little format. It'll help you understand that self-talk a little better. But let me give you another statement that counters the I will be worthy if. What we're going to try to do is change from the false assumptions to the biblical assumptions. To the biblical assumptions of worth. Note how radically different these two sound. The false assumption is, I will be worthy if, which means, right now, I'm not worthy. But I will be worthy if. The lie there is God says he's made you worthy because of who you are in Christ. And when we say, I will be worthy if, we're implying that we're now not worthy. That's what makes it a lie. That's what makes it false. And so we're going to try to change that now to a true biblical assumption. The biblical assumption concerning your worth is this, and you can rest on, assured of this, and I'll prove it to you later in our other sessions. I am worthy because of what God has done for me in Christ I couldn't do for myself. You see how different that is? I will be worthy if, says right now I'm not, worth, I'm not worthy, I'm worthless. But I am worthy is radically different than that. There's a radical difference between the two. What God wants more than anything else is us for, for us to get out of this Solomon Syndrome and always trying to prove ourselves worthy to ourselves and others, much less to get out of this intense frustration that kills us down here. He's wanting us to get out of this Solomon Syndrome by faith. Now, I've talked to you before about repentance. Let me remind you again of what repentance is. Repentance is a 180-degree change in your thinking. And so when you change your thinking, change your mind from I will be worthy if to I am worthy because the biblical assumptions you have repented, and repentance is never without faith. You cannot separate the two. Repentance and faith go hand in glove together because if you're going to change from one thing to another, you have to believe that the other thing is there. So when you repent, you change away from the false beliefs, the unbelief, to the true belief, the true biblical assumption. This is what needs to go on in our minds consciously every single day. We need to first of all be aware of how much our self-talk is taken up with these false assumptions. I will be worthy if. And then secondly, we need to replace these false assumptions with the true assumptions. I am worthy because. If we get down to changing the false assumptions to biblical assumptions, then we're dealing with the very heart of the matter. We're dealing with the essential issue of faith 
in our life. This is what God calls us to, to exercise faith on a daily basis. Unbelief sounds like this, I will be worthy if, because it's not believing what God has already said is true about you. Faith sounds like this, because of Christ's redemption, I am an awesome spirit being of magnificent worth as a person. You see how radically different those two things sound? Radically different. Now, if that's what's going on in your mind all the time, I'm an awesome spirit being of magnificent worth as a person. If that's what you're believing every single day, how do you think you're going to feel? You're going to change. Your feelings are going to change. If you truly believe who God has made you to be, you're not going to feel like a victim. You're going to feel like a victor. You're not going to be whining about your woundedness and nobody understands you and everybody lets you down. You're going to be on top of it. And if you're feeling that way, you can act that way. You can actually go on. When you believe that you are worthy, you can actually go on to love others like Christ. You see, these biblical assumptions that we're talking about, that we're going to be defining in our next few sessions, these biblical assumptions set us free to be Christ to other people and to know the satisfaction that Jesus himself knows from being Christ to other people. This is our goal to get out of the Solomon syndrome through the door of faith, repentance and faith, to get in to living a lifestyle like Christ by believing who we are. Now remember Jesus came to grips with knowing who he was when he was 12 years old, didn't he? When he was 12 years old in the temple, he knew he had to be about his father's business. He knew who he was which meant on a personal level, Jesus knew that he was secure in God's love. He knew he was significant in God's plan. And everything he did and everything he said was based on that sense of security and significance that he had. What God has called us to is the same essential thing. He's called us to believe on the fact that we are one with him, to believe on the fact that just as Jesus is secure, we are secure. Just as Jesus is significant, we are significant. He's called on us to truly believe that we are worthy because of what he's done to make us worthwhile. When we do that, we enter into biblical assumptions of worth. We enter into a whole new radically different lifestyle that is based not on the unbelief and all of the negative and sinful emotions that come from that, but is based on faith. The scriptures tell us as you therefore began your life in Jesus, so walk ye in him. How did you begin your life? By grace through faith. That's how we're to keep on walking on a daily basis. May the Lord grant you the faith to believe the truth about who you are, that you might be set free to be Christ to those around you. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 